This is Everyday Light, a perfectly imperfect reading of the One Year Daily Bible. I'm Molly, a fellow pilgrim on the road to the kingdom, and it is a joy to have you traveling this journey with me, with the Word of God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Welcome. This is the One Year Bible Reading for August 11th, and we are going to start uh, the new book of Nehemiah today, and I wanted to just read to you a little bit from my study Bible um, about Nehemiah. So we, I talked yesterday about the fact that Nehemiah was in the third group of uh, those returning from exile in Babylon. It says, the book of Nehemiah describes rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, the renewal of the spiritual lives of the workers, and the restoration of true worship in Israel. Nehemiah's role as cupbearer to the king places him in a favorable position to bring aid to the Jewish exiles who have returned to the promised land to rebuild Jerusalem. Through dependence on God and unswerving devotion to his task, Nehemiah reminds the exiles of their spiritual heritage and encourages them to successfully rebuild the city walls. Nehemiah's example of godly leadership is as applicable today as it was when he was directing the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. Difficult assignments accomplished by feelings of inadequacy can only be accomplished by staying connected to God through prayer every day and in every situation. So that's what we're going to encounter in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn of the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had survived the captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been burned. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, laws, and regulations that you gave us through your servant, Moses. Please remember what you told your servant, Moses. If you sin, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. We are your servants, the people you rescued by your great power and might. O oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success now as I go and ask the king for a great favor. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. Early the following spring, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never appeared sad in his presence before this time. So the king asked me, why are you so sad? You aren't sick, are you? You look like a man with deep troubles. Then I was badly frightened, but I replied, Long live the king. 
Why shouldn't I be sad for the city where my ancestors are buried, are buried is in ruins and the gates have been burned down? The king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please your majesty, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? So the king agreed and I set a date for my departure. I also said to the king, if it please your majesty, give me letters to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on the way to Judah. And please send a letter to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress and for the city walls and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. But when Sanballat of the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival, they were very angry that someone had come who was interested in helping Israel. Three days after my arrival in Jerusalem, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey that I myself was riding. I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So I went up to the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall, before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the religious and political leaders, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know full well the tragedy of our city. It lies in ruins and its gates are burned. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and rid ourselves of this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, good, let's rebuild the wall. So they began, began the good work. But when Sanballat, uh, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing rebelling against the king like this? They asked. But I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We are his servants and will start rebuilding this wall. But you have no stake or claim in Jerusalem. Then Eliashib, the priest, the high priest, and the other priests started to rebuild at the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set up its doors, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and the Tower of Hananel. People up from the city of Jericho worked next, next to them, and beyond them was Zakur, son of Imri. The fish gate was built by the sons of Hasena. They did the whole thing, laid the beams, hung the doors, and put the bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah and grandson of Hakoz, repaired the next section of the wall. Beside him were Meshullam, son of Berechiah, and grandson of Meshezabel and then Zadok, son of Bena. 
Next were the people from Tekoa, though their leaders refused to help. The old city gate was repaired by Joiada, son of Pasiah, and Meshulam, son of Besodiah. They laid the beams, set up the doors, and installed the bolts and bars. Next to them were Melatiah from Gibeon, Jadon from Moronoth, and people from Gibeon and Mitzpah, the headquarters of the governor of the province west of the Euphrates River. Next was Uziel, son of Harhiah, a goldsmith by trade who had also worked on the wall. Beyond him was Hananiah, the manufacturer of perfumes. They left out a section of Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, the leader of half the district of Jerusalem, was next to them on the wall. Next, Jediah, son of uh, Harumaf, repaired the wall next to his own house, and next to him was Hattush, son of Hashabaniah. Then came Malkijah, son of Harim, and Hashub, son of Pehoth Moab, who repaired the tower of the ovens, in addition to the, another section of the wall. Shalom, son of Halohesh, and his daughters repaired the next section. He was leader of the other half of the district of Jerusalem. The people from Zanoah, led by Hanun, rebuilt the valley gate, hung its doors, and installed the bolts and bars. They also repaired the 1,500 feet of wall to the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rechab, a leader from uh, leader of Beth Hakarim district. After rebuilding it, he hung the doors and installed the bolts and bars. So we have a lot of names there. That's the end of our Old Testament reading today. But what speaks to me is the importance of each one and how they came from very different backgrounds. Uh, but we have even daughters working alongside their fathers, um, everyone taking part in this important work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7. Now, about the questions you Corinthians asked in your letter, yes, it is good to live a celibate life, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should not deprive his wife of sexual intimacy, which is her right as a married woman, nor should the wife deprive her husband. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband also gives authority over his body to his wife. So do not deprive each other of sexual relations. The only exception to this rule would be the agreement of both husband and wife to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time, so they can give themselves more to prayer. Afterward, they should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt them because of their lack of self-control. This is only my suggestion. It's not meant to be an absolute rule. I wish everyone could get along without marrying just as I do, but we are not all the same. God gives some the gift of marriage and to others he gives the gift of singleness. Now, I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. Now, for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else go back to him, and the husband must not leave his wife. 
Now, I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. If a Christian man has a wife who is an unbeliever and she is willing to continue living with, with him, he must not leave her. And if a Christian woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage and the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not have a godly influence, but now they are set apart for him. But if the husband or wife who isn't a Christian insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is not required to stay with them, for God wants his children to live in peace. You wives must remember that your husbands might be converted because of you, and you husbands must remember that your wives might be converted because of you. You must accept whatever situation the Lord has put you in and continue on as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. For instance, a man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. And the man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be circumcised now. For it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commandments. You should continue on as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you, but if you get a chance to be free, take it. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, the Lord has now set you free from the awful power of sin. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. God purchased you at a high price. Don't be enslaved by the world. So, dear brothers and sisters, whatever situation you were in when you became a believer, stay there in your new relationship with God. Psalm 31, starting in verse 19. Your goodness is so great. You have stored up great blessings for those who honor you. You have done so much for those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. You hide them in the shelter of your presence, safe from those who conspire against them. You shelter them in your presence, far from accusing tongues. Praise the Lord, for he has shown me his unfailing love. He kept me safe when my city was under attack. In sudden fear, I had cried out, I have been cut off from the Lord. But you heard my cry for mercy and answered my call for help. Love the Lord, all you faithful ones, for the Lord protects those who are loyal to him but he harshly punishes all who are arrogant. So be strong and take courage, all you who put your hope in the Lord. Proverbs 21.4 Haughty eyes, a proud heart, and evil actions are all sin. And to end today, I'm gonna to switch gears for uh, today anyway, and read to you a little bit from Adorning the Dark, which is a book by Andrew Peterson, uh, who, if you're not familiar, check out his music. It is amazing. And he's also an author, not just of this book, but um, of several books, uh, particularly children's uh, fiction. So he talks about his calling in the preface. And um, what really spoke to me, and I've been chewing on this ever since I read it, uh, was the way that he described his calling and, and our calling collectively, um, which was just put in a really beautiful way. He says, that calling, as I understand it, is to use whatever gifts I've been given to tell the truth as beautifully as I can. So to use whatever gifts I've been given to tell the truth as beautifully 
as I can. Um, he talks about uh, kind of shying away from positions of leadership and teaching um, and feeling very unqualified. And he said he had to trust something George MacDonald once wrote about the inner chamber of God's heart. And George MacDonald said, as the fir tree lifts up itself with a far different need from the need of the palm tree, so does each man stand before God and lift up a different humanity to the common father. And for each God, and for each, God has a different response. With every man, he has a secret, the secret of the new name. In every man, there is a loneliness, an inner chamber of peculiar life into which God only can enter, a chamber into which no brother, nay, no sister can come. From this, it follows that there is a chamber also O oh God, humble and accept my speech, a chamber in God himself into which none can enter but the one, the individual, the peculiar man, out of which chamber that man has to bring revelation and strength for his brethren. This is that for which he was made to reveal the secret things of the Father. And Peterson writes, Your story, then, is yours and no one else's. Each sunset is different depending on where you stand. So when voices in my head tell me I have nothing to offer, nothing interesting to say, I fight back with George MacDonald. Jesus said, in my, my father's house, there are many rooms, John 14, 2. Could it be that those rooms are inner chambers in the heart of God, each of which has an individual's name on it? If this is true, and I'd like to believe that it is, then all I have to do is to tell about my Lord and my God because I know him intimately, uniquely. It may be a revelation in a sense of the secret things of the Father. This is part of my calling to make known the heart of God. I was just so encouraged by that and I hope you are too that God has certain things that are important in your story and all you need to do is tell of him. Have a beautiful day. Love you all.